So for doing the uh, doing recombination is like putting the pieces of a puzzle. So they only can be put together in one way to produce the perfect picture. Hello, welcome to this edition of Meet the Expert, a new series of podcasts on swine disease management in practice presented by Boehringer Engelheim. My name is Peter Best. For this podcast, our subject is going to be immune evasion and recombination in connection with the PERS virus. And to help us with this, our guest is Dr. Enrique Mathieu, Professor of Animal Health at the University UAB Barcelona in Spain. Welcome, Dr. Mathieu. I believe also you're, am I right, that you're a researcher at uh, CRESA in uh, Barcelona, is that correct? Good morning, that's right. And what is CRESA, please, just remind us? CRESA is the Institute of uh, Animal Health Research in Catalonia. For the Catalan area, yes. Uh, this subject, then, immune evasion and recombination regarding PERS, from your point of view, are these hot topics regarding PERS? Yes, really is one of the hot topics in, in both research and practical application today. What makes them so important in your mind? Well, uh, for many years, the research have been focusing on the, how to control the infection. And at present, we more or less know how to deal with this problem from the side of the vaccination protocols, from the side of managing pig flow in the farm, about uh, controlling biosecurity in the farm. We have more or less the knowledge about that. But we don't really know what to do when the virus is able to abate or to escape the immunity that we have in the farm. And evasion and recombination are both, therefore, parts of that wider story of uh, being able to avoid what we're doing already to control it. All right. Uh, in spite that evasion and recombination are not exactly linked one to the other, but uh, both are... Uh, phenomena that form part of this very complex disease. Yes. So let's start with evasion, immune evasion, please. Uh, I would like you to remind me, uh, what is the immune response regarding PERS virus in the pig? Very often we say that uh, the immune response against PERS virus is unusual. And we say that because uh, in most infections, what you see in most other infections, what you see is... Uh, the virus or the pathogen is infecting the animal and the animal either die or recover in a short period of time. When we look at PERS, we have a completely different picture. We have uh, an infection first that is of the, maybe we can say of the acute type. The animal develop acute signs, develop a biremia for a period, but after the clearing of the biremia after the cease of the acute infection. We have an infection that persists in the lymph nodes, in the lymphoid tissue for weeks or even months. And that makes a really complicated picture because this persistence of the virus in the body indicates that something is wrong or something is not going well with the immune response for many, many, many weeks. The good point here is that finally the infection can be clear. So there is an immune response finally 
but this is a completely different picture compared to either the typical chronic infections or the typic, typical acute infections that we have in pigs or in any other species. So the persistence after acute infection is really the area that we are talking about here. And uh, would you describe the immune response to PERS as un unusual or abnormal in, mm -hmm. in some respects? Yeah. Um, because of this persistence or yes, in because, other areas? Right, because this indicates that something something uh, is going wrong in the, in, 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 in the immune response. And if you look, for example, uh, let's say any other influenza, for example, the, the, the typical flu that we can have in pigs or even humans, uh, you are infected, you have a clinical disease for some days and then your body starts to produce antibodies, start to produce a cell-mediated immunity and rapidly can achieve the, clear, the clearance of the virus. In Paris, it's not like that. Uh, when you look at the animals, you have a rapid antibody response. You can detect animals being positive, having antibodies by day 7 or day 10 after the onset of the infection. But the uh, point here is that these antibodies that are developing very early in the cause of infection have no neutralizing abilities. They cannot neutralize the infection. So you have an indication that the immune system is responding to the infection, but this initial response is not able to clear the infection. It's, it's ineff ineffective. Right. And when you look in the cause of the infection, the antibodies that are able to clear the infection and we call this type of antibodies, neutralizing antibodies, mm -hmm. appear much later. And even we can have animals that, at the same time, they have neutralizing antibodies and viremia, they can have the virus in the blood. So this, again, indicates that this is not just having or having not neutralizing antibodies, but also is about how big is this response of neutralizing antibodies, how high are the titles of, the, of these antibodies, and how these antibodies are eliminating the virus or even if there are some variants of the virus that can escape this neutralizing response. And the same is for the cell-mediated immune response. In viral infections, sooner or later, the immune system has to destroy the factories where the virus is produced. And these factories are the cells that are infected. The problem that we have in PERS is that these factories of virus are macrophages, and macrophages are central cells in the immune response. So that makes a difficult example for a, a difficult situation for the cell-mediated immunity to act. Anyway, we know again that when the virus is eliminated, it's clear from the body, is because there is a big participation also of the cell-mediated immunity. So there is kind of a a little bit of a, a balance between the intensity of the infection, the development of the immune response in the sense that you need time to produce a response that is able to clear the infection, but finally the animal can clear the infection. This time is uh, related to the host more than the, the virus is not itself having an effect which is evading the, the response and therefore is contributing to the time? Is it host-related or virus-related? Uh, both. <laughs> Unfortunately, both. Uh, we know, for example, when uh, you vaccinate uh, a group of animals or you infect a group of animals, is always you see the same pattern. You see that some animals can have a very good response. They are able to clear the infection relatively early, while some other animals have 
longer bulimia, longer periods of infection. And uh, also we know that it's age-related. The young, the very young animal has uh, less ability to clear the infection than the adult. On the other side, if we look at the virus, and we have been doing uh, some work on that, if we look at the virus, we see that during the cause of the infection, this time, this prolonged time in, in which we can find the virus in, in, in the body, there, are, there is a selection of some mutants, of some variations that are introduced just by, by random errors in the replication of the virus. Some variants are selected against others that are negatively selected or removed from the pool of viruses. And this is an indication that there is a mechanism of evolution that uh, fables those variants of the virus that can evade this immune response. So if I may, the, in the host animal, it's, it's age that we should be considering. And in the virus itself, it's a strain that could cause well, differences uh, that we see? Not exactly the strain, because um, for viruses like PERS, we normally use or we very often use a term that is not, I mean, is, is not in the common language, that is the term quasi-species. Yes. And this is because when uh, the this type of RNA viruses replicate in the host, because of the lack of uh, correction for errors in the replication of the viral polymerase, each and every copy of the virus contains a mutation or more than a mutation. So if we put that in, in terms of the millions or hundreds of millions or, or thousands of millions of copies that are produced during an infection, that means that indeed we have any possible type of mutation in the animal. And just by chance, sooner or later you will have a mutation that probably is able to bait to some extent. So this is kind of, you know, this uh, like the arms raise. I mean, the, the, the virus is trying to abate the immune response. The immune response is trying to eliminate the virus before this happens. If you look at that in, in, in terms of evolution, that makes a lot of sense. Thank you. I, uh, the idea of quasi-species uh, is uh, an interesting one. It, it's presumably applied in a wider field of virology, but it's particularly become relevant as we consider PERS virus diversity, has it? The, the quasi-species clusters or clouds, mm -hmm. you, you would say, is very much something we need to be considering. Yes, and, and 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 this is one of the uh, one of the uh, the areas uh, in which I think we can gain depth in the, in the understanding of how the virus can evade immune response. Because, uh, for example, we have been examining what happens with the animals that are vaccinated, and uh, in spite of that, can be infected. We know that vaccines for birds are not perfect. Some animals that are vaccinated can be. Uh, infected if, if, if the, the, the right circumstances happen. And when looking at those animals that are infected after vaccination because they are exposed to, to, to wild virus that can infect them, it's very interesting to see that this immunization happens in very particular parts of the viral genome. It's not a scatter all along the viral genome, but concentrates in, in a couple of viral proteins. So these are clear targets to improve for for, for thinking ways to improve the vaccine to reduce these uh, variants that can escape. So the genetic codes, if you will, that yeah. are 
the areas of investigation, I assume, therefore, this inv these investigations are already ongoing and yeah. they've progressed to some degree, have they? They're, they're yeah. still very promising, uh, but uh, not yet at completion. Is Colorado, that right? there, is, there is a long way until <laughs> <laughs> having a final result. For yes, that. I'm with it. Meanwhile, how, you know, with immunization, how can we act against this today? Um, in practical terms, we cannot, because uh, we can we do not know how to control this immunization. We know more or less that it happens. We know more or less the ways that the virus can use to obey the immune system, but we still have the problem of how to deal with it in practical terms. I mean, from a, in a theoretical point of view, it's relatively easy if you can produce a big amount of antibodies in the animal, a high titer of neutralizing antibodies with a broadly ability to neutralize very different strains, that could be the way. The problem is how to produce that given that there is also a host variation in the response. And, 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 and many people are trying to understand this host factor. So to put it uh, very in a very simple way, uh, probably the control or the limitation of this immunization will involve the host, the study of the host, genetics of the host, will involve the vaccines that we are using, it will involve probably the adjuvants that we are using for these vaccines, the schedules of vaccination, and probably, why not, maybe some new technologies that are coming uh, to the light. But certainly the work and therefore the cost of doing that uh, investigation is fully justified given the situation, the cost of immune evasion to us as pork producers. Of course, when, when, when you look at the figures uh, to, the, to the burden that the disease is supposed to produce, uh, the amount of money, and not only money, because uh, pig production is not only about money, there are many other things related to the to the people in the land, to the use of the land, to the preservation of some ways of living. When you look at the burden of the disease, obviously the investment for the uh, increasing the understanding uh, on this disease is, is really, really important. Hmm. Your answer has already referred us to this remarkable diversity of PERS viruses that we are faced with today. Uh, to what extent is this diversity driven by mutation and how much is by recombination? We can say that, it's very difficult to put figures in that, but we can say that most of the diversity is created by mutation. And uh, because this, this is something that will happen always, the, 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 the replication of the viral genome includes always errors because the polymerase is like it's like a very hardworking person, but not very accurate in the work. <laughs> so so uh, it's very good at producing copies, but sometimes diseases are introduced in the genome. So mutation is everywhere in the copies. Recombination has some requirements. You have to have one animal that is co-infected by two different strains. This co-infection has to be present in a given cell, and then something else has to happen. I mean, you need that the mechanism, the molecular mechanism for recombination happen in these co-infected cells. 
So when you look more or less to the diversity that we have in the field for the virus, I would dare to say that 90% or something like that, or 95% is attributable to mutation. And then there is a part that can be attributable to recombination. Is the genetic relationship between the two virus agents within the cell important? I, I'm thinking we're very used in the past to talk about type 1 and type mm -hmm. 2, for example. Can I just start with that, uh, those descriptions? If you took type 1 and type 2, can they recombine? Can there be a mutation between them? Or is that not happening in practice? You are listening to Meet the Expert, a new series of podcasts on swine disease management in practice presented by Boehringer Ingelheim. If you would like to know more about the subject we're discussing in this podcast, additional information is available offline. Dr. Matthew, if we talk mutation and recombination, how much is the genetic relationship between the viruses within a cell going to have an influence on whether or not mutation or recombination occur? I'm thinking the old way we always talked about type 1 and type 2 PERS viruses, would they be candidates to mutate together or to recombine, or are they too distinct to do so? The general idea is that the closer the two strains are, the easier is the recombination. And, and to understand that, we have to, to have a clear idea about how, for example, type 1 and type 2 differ. When we look at type 1 and type 2, both viruses share the same genes, have the same proteins, but they do not have exactly the same composition in the genome. So for doing the uh, doing recombination is like putting the pieces of a puzzle. So they only can be put together in one way to produce the perfect picture. So if you have two different viruses that are within the same species, very closely related, you can cut and paste in very different parts of the genome, producing a meaningful picture. When you have two viruses that are close but not that close and you cut and paste in different pace, uh, parts of the genome, the picture is less than perfect and probably is not viable. So that means that recombination between one type, within one type, type 1 or type 2, it's common. And probably we can have some degree of recombination in between different strains within the same species or between, in the case of PERS-1, this has been demonstrated between subtype 1, this is the Western European type, and subtypes 3 or 2 or 4 in the Eastern Europe Eastern part, Europe, but yeah. they are still within the same species. I see. Yeah. What is the frequency of recombination then in, in, under those conditions? Is it happening all the time or is it happening occasionally? How frequent of an event is it? Yeah, uh, we have to understand that recombination is a natural fact. I mean, we can we can a little bit uh, control that, or uh, or we can promote by the by the things that we are doing. But this is a natural fact, and that means that recombination will happen each and every time that we have the good the right conditions for that. 
The problem is that for many, 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 many years now, we have been looking at the viral genome of birds, just looking at the R5 or maybe the R7. If we consider that the viral genome is about 15,000 bases, and R5 is 600 bases, that means that we are trying to understand the proportion of recombinant and isolate just by looking at less than 5% or 10% of the genome. When the tools have been available to examine the whole genome in, in, in just a very simple way, we really understand that this recombination happens in about, maybe in Western Europe, 5%, 3%, 7% of the strains in this range. That may seem probably a very low value, but it's very high. So uh, the method of detection and recombination, I understand from that, would involve essentially sequencing uh, and then uh, looking either at the open reading frame or the whole genome. Uh, am I correct from yes. saying it in that way? Today, uh, the whole genome approach is not used as much as the OR5 approach because I guess OR5 is quicker and cheaper and so on. Would that be correct as well? Yes. But the whole genome approach would give us a better understanding of recombination, how frequently it occurs, and what are the results of right. that recombination. And uh, if we understood recombination better from that work, what could you expect to, for us to gain from that? Would we have a practical way of... Um, controlling it or acting against it or is it an event that is so numerous so natural that it will happen whatever we do here we have uh, two different um, two different points one is from pure science to say it so uh, examining the whole genome and comparing the strains of the virus that are circulating in the field we can first understand if there are what we call hot spots for recombination. I mean, recombination is produced when we have two strains in the same cell and the viral polymerase just switch the template. Yes. They start copying one of the genomes and then because it's not very accurate, jump to the other genome and continue the copy using as a template the second genome and then come back to the first one. And this is kind of cut and paste. I use this segment for one part, this other segment from this other virus for this part, and so on. Okay, But when you look at the sequences that you have in the field, we don't have still enough statistics, but it looks like this cannot happen everywhere in the genome. And that makes sense, because some parts of the genome are more flexible, are more plastic, may admit insertions or deletions, small changes, while some other proteins cannot be changed because if they are changed, they lose the functionality of the protein and the virus is not viable. And this is important because depending on what is possible and what is not, we can start to see what the results of this recombination could be. So we need to gain this, this knowledge and this knowledge can only come from um, the examination of lots and lots and lots of strains circulated. And then we have a second point, that is the practical examination in the field. Um, I think that this is, this is really important because the key question here is how recombination can produce more virulent or less virulent or has no relationship 
with violence. And at some point, we have to cross the information from the sequencing in the lab, from the examination of these potential hotspots, of these mechanisms, of these molecular mechanisms of recombination with the things that we see in the field. We cannot work as if this virus in the lab is something that is not happening in the field. Finally, our patients are the pigs in the, in the field, so we have to look at them. We haven't yet got those links then. We can describe the virus, we can look at different genetic uh, uh, differences between them, but we can't relate those to virulence or the ability right. to create disease. Uh, but you think that is possible? You think that that, that must be the the ultimate target to don't to know find I, I really don't know because virulence is multigenic we know that for many years now uh in in, in very early studies the the idea was uh, kind of we will produce a virus in which we remove the virulent parts and we put the attenuated parts and by this mean I'm, I'm talking 25 years ago and by this means we can create a vaccine that is perfectly fit for our purpose that was complete failure. I mean, the idea was brilliant, but that was complete failure because you have virulence determinants in several parts of the genome. So understanding if this recombination will involve parts that we know that more or less are critical, not only for virulence, but also for the interaction of the virus with the immune system because the, the virus can interact very deeply with the immune system of the pig, is critical to understand the outcome of these recombinations. I'm going to continue, if I may, with the practical significance of recombination, given that our audience are uh, practitioners, field veterinarians. And uh, I more or less asked the question before, should they care that recombination happens? And I'm thinking in particular uh, their approach to recombination risks where vaccination is uh, occurring. Uh, do, is there something here that we need to be considering uh, when we are uh, choosing our vaccines or using our vaccines? Yes. Um, I would like to, to comment something before that. Um, in my point of view, this is not only about recombination. This is about risk management. You have a disease that costs a lot of money, that produce a lot of problems in the farm that uh, affect negatively the welfare of animals, and then you have means for controlling that. And one of the means that you have for that, one of the means that you have for that is vaccination. And the first question here is, what is better, to use the vaccine or not to use the vaccine? And maybe someone is saying, I will not vaccinate. But I think that the reasonable answer is it's better to vaccinate than to avoid vaccination. So we have to use vaccines to control pests. So risk management dictates vaccinate. Yes. This is the first point. The second point is, okay, since we decide to use the vaccine, how can we use this vaccine to reduce any potential interference with recombination, any potential problem? And I think that you don't need to, 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 to go to very high science, just common sense. Use the vaccine as the label says. And second thing, just use the vaccine for prevention. So that means that you are vaccinating healthy animals before they are infected. If the animals are vaccinated before they are infected, they will develop immunity. 
And if they develop immunity, they will be less likely to be infected. So if they are less likely to be infected, the chances for having a co-infection are very low. So by this simple means, you are controlling or you are limiting the potential impact for the generation of recombinants. But equally, if you're vaccinating, those uh, vaccine viruses are going to be present, modified live viruses are going to be present on the herd. You're going to identify that they are present in your investigations, but the significance of their presence is not that they are there and could be at risk of a recombination, but they are there because they are there from vaccination. We know they are there. Right. Uh, I think that we have to clarify uh, one idea. Uh, so often I receive calls or I receive emails asking me, uh, I'm vaccinating with a live vaccine on the farm, and after vaccination, particularly if I'm vaccinating piglets, I find, I'm able to find the vaccine virus in the farm. And uh, my answer normally is, and of course, <laughs> you're using a live vaccine. Live vaccines work just because they are live. If they are not live, they will not produce an immune response. I mean, the principle of live vaccine use is exactly that. You have a attenuated virus that will replicate in the host. So this is not the problem. The problem is to identify if the virus that you have in the farm is just pure live vaccine or is something else. And for that, you have one simple thing or one simple question. Do I have problems in the farm or not? First question. And second question, am I monitoring the farm or I'm just doing diagnosis because I have something that is out of the normality? I think that these, these are simple questions, but they are very important because this is what exactly permits us to have a global picture of the thing. I mean, is the farmer or the field veterinarian should be concerned with recombination, with monitoring? Of course. But without losing the whole picture. Because it's like, you know, these days it's very common when you look at the scientific literature and these uh, works about metagenomics. I even published some of them. And you start using this new generation technology to look out for new viruses in samples. And you have, for example, a fecal, a fecal sample or a saliva sample or something, and you are able to detect out of the sample 30 or 15 or 20 different viruses. And the next question is, and so what? Is this related to the disease that I'm seeing, or this is just part of a thing that we call the biome, and we don't know. So what I'm trying to say is that information has to be put in context for a right interpretation, cannot be taken out of the context. And, and then for the practical point of view regarding that, we have another point, is about the biosecurity of the farm. I mean, we know that for PERS, one of the main problems is not to have a negative farm or not to have a control farm. It's to avoid the farm to being reinfected. So we have to produce a good biosecurity scheme of our farm just to avoid the continuous entrance of new isolates or new strains from abroad. That's a big problem too because if you are introducing continuously new viruses from outside sooner or later, 
you will have one of these variants that will escape from your vaccination protocol. And uh, the problem at that moment wouldn't be if you are vaccinating or not. The problem is why are you letting these viruses from so the outside world come into your farm? Yes, yes, yes. And I, I, I'm conscious that it's not easy to, to produce a good biosecurity protocol. I'm, I'm fully conscious of that. But monitoring would help you to see what is happening in practice with that biosecurity over time. What you're saying with monitoring, I, I should imagine, am I right, that you want to be looking at this herd or production system on a regular basis by measuring certain things each time to see what changes right. are occurring. And in relation to PERS, is that sequencing? Is What is that monitoring in, in practice, please, what would you describe exactly, as being it's exactly ideal? That. I, 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 sometimes I, when uh, I'm asked about that, I say that for me it's very simple. If you are doing the whole protocol for controlling PERS, I mean, you are using biosecurity, vaccination, and SARS or in piglets or in whatever age group that you decide in the farm, if you are managing the flow of the animals between the different phases of, of, of production, if you are controlling internal biosecurity and so on, and in spite of that, over and over again, you find the same strain circulating in your farm, blame on you, because you're doing something wrong. If you are finding a new strain every time, again, blame on you, because you are not controlling the outside sources of virus. So sequencing is very useful for deciding, should I change my internal biosecurity, my immunization protocol, the things that I'm doing in the farm, or if I have something new, if I have new virus in the farm, should I modify, should I correct the problems that I have with external biosecurity? So it's completely useful tool from this point of view. What Sequencing cannot tell us if is if you have to use vaccine A or B or C or D. We are not able to to do this type of of of, of prediction. Uh, in your case, what do you recommend for sequencing as samples? What what would you suggest what, is what, the most appropriate? Right. Uh, what we normally recommend, just uh, out of the uh, cost, is just keep doing this or five sequencing. It's fine. I mean, if you have a clear idea and, and, and if you have sequences that are similar enough or different enough to say are the same or are completely different, that's fine. You don't need anything else at this moment. But if you have a special problem, if you have something that is not fitting your expectations, if you have clinical disease when the infection was thought to be controlled before that, Maybe why don't you use this full genome sequence? It's mm. not it's not that costly. In our hands, uh, full genome examination costs less than four hundred euros. Okay, it's money, but it's not that big money. And you don't have to do it every day, do you? Right, as it, you say, you wait till there's a need. This is for special occasions, but you have the tool that can answer you the question. Yes. Thank you very much, Dr. Mathieu, for, for your uh, advice on this. And if I could ask for a, a take-home message for these field veterinarians and practitioners listening to us, I would imagine that the first one we could say is, with vaccination, use it in the way the manufacturer rep re recommends. 
that would be the one. And the other is with recombination, it's not really a consideration that it's likely to mean that a modified live virus in a vaccine reverts to virulence. It's more a question that it could give you variants in future that can escape your immunization protocols. Right. Uh, um, many times I, I, I put to my students the, the example of the use of antimicrobial agents. Uh, could it be possible to live in the current world without antimicrobials? Completely without. Uh, my guess is not. Except that we accept to die at 40 from some infection in the gum or something like that. This means that we can use it freely like if they were candy? The answer is no. We have indication from the agencies, from the manufacturers, we have a rational use. It's exactly the same. We can, in the case of, of PERS, we cannot live without vaccines. But we have indications of how to use it. Follow the indications. Thank you very much. You're very welcome. You have been listening to a Meet the Expert podcast presented by Boehringer Inkelheim. Please note that other podcasts in this series are becoming available. Stay tuned and thank you for listening.